So this evening I'd like to continue exploring the theme that Gil introduced us to yesterday, which he refers to as the hindrances and the assistances. And just to frame that very simply to begin with, these are qualities of heart and mind that either support freedom or get in the way of it. And as I think most of you know, in the Buddha's teachings there are classically five hindrances. There's desire for sense, pleasure, there's ill will or aversion, there's sloth and torpor, there's restlessness and remorse, and there's skeptical doubt. And these are particular mental states that cover over or obscure the mind's capacity for insight, the mind's capacity to see clearly. And to get a flavor of those, I'd just like to share some imagery from the classical discourses. And so very often in the suttas, the metaphor of still, clear water is often used as a synonym for the mind in meditation. And that image of water, it evokes um, qualities of clarity and tranquility. When the mind is still and clear, then deep insight can arise. And so when the Buddha was talking about the hindrances, he used the metaphor of a bowl of water to represent the mind. And this is because in, in the India of his day, mirrors as we know them were not that common, if at all. And so people would use a bowl of water, a still bowl of water, to reflect uh, their face in, in the way that we use mirrors today. And of course, if the bowl of water is not completely still and steady, we're not going to get an accurate reflection. So the Buddha used this analogy of the bowl of water to describe how each of the hindrances affects the mind. So he compared the first hindrance, the desire for sense pleasure, with a bowl of water that's had all kind of colored dyes stirred into it. So the water's all stirred up with red and green and blue and yellow and so forth. And the pretty colors, they enchant us, but they prevent, prevent us from seeing clearly. And then in the classical analogy for the hindrance of ill will, this is likened to a bowl of water that's been heated up and is bubbling and boiling over. And obviously, again, when the water is hot and agitated like that, we can't see clearly. And in English, we talk about, for example, seething with anger. And seething is an old-fashioned word for boiling. So you have this sense of it's a pretty unpleasant state. And from the metaphor of it, we also can understand how painful aversion is and potentially dangerous. Like boiling water, it's dangerous to us, to others. The next one, sloth and torpor, you might recognize it's the mind that's been covered over with slimy moss and water plants. So stagnant, stale, the water can't move because it's choked with weeds. And obviously, again, we're not going to get a clear reflection. 
The metaphor for restlessness and worry is a bowl of water that's become ruffled by the wind so that the water trembles, eddies and ripples. Again, no clear reflection there. And then finally, skeptical doubt. The metaphor is a bowl of water that is agitated, stirred up, muddied and put in a dark place. So (laughs) I think it's interesting with that one that not only is a bowl of water filled with mud, but literally and metaphorically, it's in a dark place. So we we get a sense of the doubly destructive aspect of doubt, that the mind is clouded by mud and it's in a dark place. So we can't even see that it's clouded by mud. Okay, so that's just a kind of little snapshot of the the sort of energetic effects that each of the hindrances can have on the mind. And we'll be talking about all of them in the coming days. And because Gil spoke last night about sensual desire, this evening it's my turn to focus on this next one, which is ill will or aversion. Before I go there, though, I'd like to just kind of zoom out a bit and say a little more about some of the challenges of practicing with these hindrances. As Gil mentioned the other night, it's a really crucial skill in insight practice to get clearer about our motivations, to really understand the various strategies that we're using to try and get what we want, to try and get our needs met and to recognize whether these motivations and energies are harmful or helpful, wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful. Now, of course, most of the time, our motives are mixed. They tend not to be just one or the other. But bringing mindfulness to the source of our motivational energy helps us to see more clearly what's what. And then as we start to recognize if these hindrances are present and how they feel in the body, recognize the impact they have on the heart and the mind, it becomes easier to let them go because we've very directly felt and understood the harm that they cause. And just to name, even in talking about these hindrances as hindrances, While the overall aim here is to experience a heart-mind that is released from all of these afflictive states, it's important not to relate to the hindrances of things as qualities, as negative experiences or as problems or things that we're supposed to get rid of ASAP. So I think we've mentioned that a few times now and Gil's been talking about just not disconnecting from these qualities but to get to know them to get familiar with them the other key aspect in relating to the hindrances and this can be pretty challenging is to not take them personally when the hindrances do come visiting it's so easy to collapse into them and identify with them and take them to be me and mine, and who I am. So we internally tell ourselves, I'm so greedy, or I'm so angry, or I'm so sleepy, I'm so anxious, I'm so doubtful, and so forth. 
But the Buddha was very clear that these states, they're not inherent to who we are. They're temporary visitors. And there's a slightly technical word that's often used to, to describe these afflictive states. It's the English word adventitious. Adventitious. That basically means it's happening as a result of external factors or chance. It's not by design. It's not inherent nature. It can also mean coming from outside, not native so putting that in Buddhist terms, we can say that the hindrances, they arise due to causes and conditions. They're, not, they're impersonal. They're not inherent. They're not native. They're not due to my unique defects, we could say. So I hope that might help reduce any tendency to judgment when you do get visited by one or more of these hindrances. Maybe in a similar vein, the English Dharma teacher Rob Barbea that some of you know, he used to describe the hindrances as, quote, manifestations of our humanity. And I, I like that term because it, it has quite a different flavor in the terminology of hindrances. If we think of them as just manifestations of our humanity. And perhaps it invites a little more kindness and helps us see that they're not, the hindrances are not qualities that we want to just reflexively disconnect from or disown. Because in one sense they are part of our humanity. But, and this is an important but, they're not the whole of our humanity. Our humanity has many different facets. And what we're doing here is developing the capacity actually to choose which qualities we want to gestate, to germinate, to bring to fruition, and which qualities we want to just gently, kindly help to release. And this supports not only our own well-being, but the well-being of everyone around us too. So you could say that this willingness to engage with the hindrances and also to cultivate what Gill calls the assistances or supports, we can think of it actually as a profound act of love. It's really a contribution to the own and others' well-being. So with that as context, let's just take a, and to make it a little bit less theoretical now, let's just take a look bit more closely at the second hindrance, which is ill will or aversion. So whereas the first hindrance of sensual desire is grounded in that basic movement towards what we want, ill will or aversion is the opposite. It's the movement away from, away from what we don't want, the motivation to push away or get rid of, avoid, even annihilate what we don't want. So this one is motivated by hostility of various kinds. And broadly speaking, there are, I think of them as sort of families. There are two families or subsets within the hindrance of aversion. Those that are rooted in anger and those that are rooted in fear. 
So ill will or aversion includes emotions and states such as dislike, irritation, frustration, anger, rage, resentment, competitiveness, envy, jealousy, anxiety, fear, panic, terror, sadness, despair, rejection, embarrassment, humiliation, shame. That's just a representative sample. I could <laughs> spend quite a lot of this talk just naming these different afflictive states that we could say are under the umbrella of aversion. But I wonder, just when you hear that list, is there any response? At least for myself, I can notice kind of an aversion to hearing about all those aversive states. And actually that's good, because the first step in relating skillfully to any of these hindrances is to be able to recognize them, to know them, or to note them, if that helps. So just to recognize, oh yeah, that is aversion. <laughs> aversion is here, irritation or resistance, whatever it might be. So with Gill's three-part approach, we want to know what the hindrance is. Then we feel it. So again, not disconnecting it, but just taking some time to feel it, to recognize the effect on the body, recognize the impact on the heart and the mind. So when you touched into that perhaps a few moments ago, or if it's still present now, maybe you noticed with that aversion came a subtle stiffening in the body, maybe a kind of a feeling of bracing, maybe a little bit of a frown on the face, or just a slight tightening in the jaw. And it's a really useful skill to be able to recognize for you how does aversion tend to manifest in the body. Because often how it shows up is as various forms of tightness or tension or contraction, bracing, stiffening, and so on. And this is why the third of part of Gill's approach, the invitation to relax, is so helpful when it comes to aversion. Sometimes just recognizing that stiffening that comes with aversion and right there, almost at the source, okay, relax. Consciously scan through the body and find those areas of holding and see if they might soften just a little. And sometimes if we catch it early enough, just that helps it to release. One of the challenges of aversion, though, is because it's unpleasant, we often have aversion to the aversion. <laughs> so we're consciously or unconsciously looking for strategies to get rid of it. And that underlying aversion, unfortunately, tends to make it stick around longer or possibly even intensify it. So it's kind of an Aikido move, a bit like in uh, martial arts, we want to sort of bend that energy of aversion and instead of meeting it with more aversion, try to soften it and to meet it instead with kind curiosity, with open interest. And, as I mentioned earlier, to try not to take it personally. Now, of course, this is 
much easier said than done for all of us. And there will unfortunately be times when our mindfulness is not strong enough to meet the intensity of the hindrances. And so although the first approach is to know, to feel, to relax, there may be times when we need to take a more more a little more intervention, especially with aversion because it has that association with harm. If we're in danger of doing something pretty unskillful, then we might need to take a more active engagement. So I'm going to, for a moment, just pick up on Gill's framework of the hindrances and the assistances and play with his idea that there is a healthy form of aversion. So playing with the English word aversion, it comes from the root to avert, which means to just to turn away from. So in English, for example, we talk about averting one's gaze. And so it's just turning away from what's not wanted. And actually in the Buddhist teachings, there are quite a few different ways that we're encouraged to turn away from what's unhelpful. We can think of renunciation, for example. As many of you know, renunciation is a... a highly valued in the Buddha's teachings. And it has the sense of letting go, of relinquishing anything that we have a more compulsive or addictive relationship to. And in the context of being on retreat, we can experiment with that as a form of what's known as guarding the sense doors. So I'm not sure if you're familiar with that term, but guarding the sense doors is really the invitation to Let our awareness become inward as much as possible, not in a tight, shut-down kind of way, but just as a support for not engaging with unnecessary distractions. So that's partly why we encourage you just to kind of stay in your own space and not let the eyes go out traveling or wandering, not let the um, sense gates be open. And just to try and give you a sense of that, uh, in my own practice a few years ago, an example of not doing that, I was on an early, uh, I think it was one of my first three-month retreats at the Forest Refuge in Massachusetts. And I got into the habit of going for a walk every day after lunch. And I would do the same route every day And after a while, I noticed that when I got back into the hall at two o'clock, I'd feel sort of depressed and flat and there was sort of murky forms of aversion lurking in there. And they passed away and the next day I went for a walk. I came back, same experience. And this went on for quite a few days in a row. So finally, I thought, oh, I'll investigate this a little bit more. And when I paid attention to what I was doing, I noticed that when I was coming back to the hall, I was walking through the car park and I was letting my eyes read all the number plates. And because it was the US, they were from all different states and they looked different. And quite a few of them had the slogans of the states that they were from. And one of them would always jump out at me. It's the one for New Hampshire. It says, live free or die. And so, 
So I would walk past this kind of like a barrage of slogans and just seeing them made me, un I was unconsciously feeling like I'm a foreigner. I don't belong here. I'm not at home. But all of this was below the surface. And so I would get to the hall and sit down. And finally, when I saw what I was doing, I realized, oh, this is loneliness. This is homesickness. This is alienation. And then I realized I don't have to walk past the cars. <laughs> I don't have to read every single license plate. I can actually take a different road. And it saved me so much time and emotional energy. Now, not to say that loneliness is wrong or bad and we should be trying to avoid it, but we can support our practice by not letting the attention leak out in ways that aren't so helpful. And when I was able to cut through that sort of proliferation of unskillful states, then I could offer myself a little more kindness, more compassion, or loneliness. Okay, it's okay. So just as Gil talked about yesterday, not all sense desire is bad, not all aversion is bad. And it actually is possible to avert without aversion. So averting or diverting our attention away from those situations or emotions or even people that tend to pull us into less skillful states. So again, in terms of the teachings, we can think of the five ethical training precepts actually as a skillful form of averting We've been invited to refrain from harming living beings, to refrain from taking what's not given, and so forth. These are healthy forms of averting. They direct our energy away from what's unskillful and support that energy to gestate and nurture what's beneficial, skillful, beautiful, onward leading, leading to freedom. So Gill has been using this imagery metaphor of gestating, gestating healthy motivations. And perhaps maybe even more so in the context of this particular retreat, with the challenges of the cyclone that are impacting us all, I've been appreciating how in the intensity of this situation, something that the Buddha spoke of often, in summary he said, where and how we place our attention has enormous effect on how we experience the world, not just in the moment, but in the longer term too. So you may know his famous statement that, quote, whatever the mind frequently thinks and ponders upon, that becomes the inclination of the mind. Or we could put that in modern neuroscience terms, neurons that fire together, wire together. We're literally shaping our hearts and minds by everything that we think, everything that we take in, all the responses that we have. And if we really understand how this shaping or crafting of the heart and mind is happening, that understanding can heighten our motivation to really take care with what kind of mind patterns, what habits, 
what hindrances or assistances are we actually strengthening in any given moment? So coming back to aversion and how it can show up specifically in a retreat context, I think in most retreats it's pretty common that when we come into community, we come into sangha, we start living together as we are doing here, it's pretty common to experience at least a few flickers of irritation or frustration or judgment in relation to other people. But I was just reflecting on how for me at least, sort of being in the eye of this storm with all of you, it's put those little minor aversions into perspective. And I wonder if that might feel true for some of you too, that having all that turbulence outside somehow makes us appreciate the support of each other inside in here. In some ways, it's as if the experience of the cyclone is helping to avert the attention away from the petty differences or irritations to seeing the bigger picture, to seeing the good and the beautiful and the support and the connections that we're all sharing. So I was reflecting on that and thinking of a parallel example that I I hadn't thought of for quite a while now. It's a broadly similar experience I had when I was managing a meditation center in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales in Australia. Some of you here are from that area, know that area. And so I was managing, I think it was a slightly longer retreat and Just like here, I gave the opening talks and I showed all the different people how to do their jobs and had a very familiar experience over the next few days of wondering why why certain people weren't doing their jobs the way I'd showed them to and why other people just weren't putting their rubbish in the bins that were clearly marked with what was to go where, and why some people clearly hadn't listened to anything that I'd said, and why some people were putting their shoes in there, and on and on and on. So, fairly common experience. Now, this retreat center was located in an area where there were often bushfires, and a few days into the retreat, actually a a fire, a pretty serious fire started, down in the valley. We were up on a cliff on an escarpment. And this fire came up so quickly that we didn't have time to evacuate. They immediately closed the highway and the train tracks. There was nowhere for us to go. So we just had to stay there, do what we could to take care of the property of each other and continue with the retreat. And I was so inspired to see how those retreatants handled the situation. It was pretty intense because the meditation hall was actually right under the flight path of where the helicopters and the planes were picking up water from a nearby dam and then flying right over the top of us, probably every 10 minutes. And the hall was wooden with a wooden floor. And the helicopters were so low (laughs) that one time I came into the hall and all the meditators were going, doof, 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 doof. The whole hall was just reverberating (laughs) with the noise of the aircraft. And people were doing walking meditation with wet tea towels over their heads. And 
strips of eucalyptus bark burning were just floating through the sky as they were walking and they just stamped them out <laughs> or beat them out with <laughs> and I got one note the entire time from someone saying is everything okay <laughs> question mark <laughs> and my perception of those irritating people completely changed <laughs> Instead of seeing all the trivial ways that they hadn't been doing what I thought they were supposed to be doing, I just saw how each person rose to that occasion, how they faced up to the challenges that we were in. And in the process, those challenges catalyzed the resources to meet the situation skillfully. And instead of being slightly irritating to me, they became actually noble, even heroic. And I really felt how collectively all of us were supporting that in each other. And again, that's the power of doing this practice together, the power of sangha, of community. We might not be interacting in our usual ways, our external ways, but in the silence, we can bond with each other and support each other in ways that perhaps are even more deep than if we were sitting around having fireside chats every day. <coughs> and when I reflected on that situation, I thought it's a little bit sad that it took a kind of a crisis to avert my attention away from the irritations, away from that semi-conscious habit of noticing what I didn't like and avert it towards seeing the good in people. And as I was remembering that experience and reflecting on it for tonight's talk, it really strengthened my resolve to try and do that in every circumstance, not just when there's some kind of crisis, but can I really remember to focus on people's beautiful attributes? Because there's something about seeing the best in each other or seeing the best in ourselves that supports, strengthens those skillful qualities in all of us. So that's one possible strategy for working with aversion. If when mindfulness isn't strong enough just to help it release, can we avert from the aversion, divert the attention to somewhere more skillful? However, even that at times, at least in my experience, is not going to be possible. There are times when the aversion really gets its hooks into us and we don't have the capacity to avert. And somehow the attention just keeps looping back and back and back over and over, feeding the aversion. And so in that case, we might need to put even more effort forward and find an active antidote
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.